Hello and welcome to Mavs Explained. We talk Mavs news, trends, history, or a little something about the organization that maybe you didn't know every single day. Today, we're talking about something that everybody should remember very well. Not only because it was one of the highlights of probably the best sports summer of our lives, but also the games just re-aired on Fox Sports Southwest last week. We are, of course, talking about Mavericks Lakers. And joining me to do so today is a guy who, uh, I guess, I don't, I don't really know what you were doing during Mavs Lakers, Mike Marshall. So I guess we'll have to, uh, well, you'll have to tell some stories during this pod because I know at the time, you know, this was before you or I worked for the team. Uh, I was still in college at the time, so uh, you know, I was just a fan, really. But what, what were you doing during Mavs Lakers? Were you going to games? I'm, I'm assuming you were tuning in. I mean, what was, what was your Mavs Lakers experience like? Yeah, so I was 25 at the time, so I was for sure working at the tickets. Um, I'd probably advance to like weekend overnight board up and producing a few shows here and there. And then I was probably, no, I know exactly what, what I was doing at, where I was working my full-time job at this point um, for a company called Fastenal, which is like nuts and bolts and things like that. Um, and I remember when we won the championship asking if I could take that day off and go to downtown Dallas and nope, that didn't happen. Um, so that's why I remember we working got, at that We got that too place. many bolts to sell. Can't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was like, nobody's coming in today. Like nobody. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's that's how I remember where I was working. Um, I definitely went to one of the first round games, um, the Trailblazers games. Then I didn't get to go to another one. I think one of the Soroys took me to um, one of the Trailblazers games. Um, but I wanted to go to one of the Lakers games. And I remember whenever we got squared up with the Lakers, um, just thinking, okay, what is this team's won two championships in a row. They've obviously got Kobe Bryant, they've got Pau Gasol probably in his prime, um, Lamar Odom. They just seemed like, I don't know, they were like the perfect basketball team for that perfect time because as soon as the Mavs got like the amount of talent, the ball movers, the the peak of Dirk, as soon as, and Jet, as second they hit this plateau of like, this is the new style of basketball. We shoot a lot of threes. We move the basketball. We agree that an open three from your ninth man on your bench is better than a contested two from Kobe Bryant. Um, it just felt like those two trains were coming to an intersection and nothing exemplified it more than this series to me. Because you have a two-time defending champion, Kobe Bryant probably the best player on earth at that moment, and this different style of basketball came down the tracks and just knocked it the hell off. And the game hasn't been the same, I don't think. Yeah, that that game, that series kind of represented a shift, right? I mean, there were teams that played the way that the Mavs did, kind of relatively closely speaking. Like the, the seven seconds or less Suns ran a lot of high pick and roll. Um, even the Spurs by then were running a lot of spread stuff with like Manu, you know, size, attacking the lane, kicking it out to shooters and stuff. But the Mavs were the first team that proved that uh, you you could blend this hyper modern game with also an elite post up guy in Dirk, and if your elite post up guy could also be an elite pick and pop guy, then you just were unstoppable, and mm-hmm. that became kind of the the future of the NBA. But this Mavs Lakers series, I mean, I think it's important to set the 
the stage. So you already mentioned, obviously, they're the two-time defending champions. They won in 2010. Uh, they beat the Celtics in Game 7. Yeah, that was an awesome they won series. In, they won in 2009 where they, they kind of slapped around the Magic, yeah. who the Magic were at the time kind of this like really futuristic offense with space and you know spreading the ball around. Yeah, dude, he dude Circle was like evolutionary during the playoffs. Like he showed, I think he like laid a blueprint for what Dirk should be the rest of his career, and it didn't work like to the we bring home a trophy point. But it's funny whenever like good ideas um aren't quite like uh fermented all the way we just forget that it's a good idea but then two years later Dirk comes in and does the same thing not as quite with the ball movement that he was doing but just that stretch big that could do everything and unlock the offense yeah and and so the the fact that the Lakers had already beaten the Magic now I I think I don't think you'll find anybody that would argue that the Magic in 2009 had more talent than the Mavs in 2011 but uh, styles make fights, right? And the Lakers were able to beat that spread offense uh, and just bully them on the other end. And going into this Lakers series, you had the team that arguably had the most size in the NBA, at least quality size, Bynum, Gasol, Odom. Now, those three guys didn't always play together. In fact, they hardly ever played together until game three. But you could have two of those guys on the floor at all times. And what element of the Mavs Blazers series in the first round gave the Mavs the most problems there were there were a few Andre Miller's size was kind of an issue but it was predominantly just offensive rebounds LaMarcus Aldridge bullying him in the post who's Dirk gonna guard if he's on Marcus Camby can he keep Camby off the glass if he's on Aldridge can he stop Aldridge both of those guys can kind of guard Dirk and bother them with their length and their athleticism and LA had even more quality length than the Blazers did and so going into this series it was like dude these are two seven foot dominant post-up guys that can both give Dirk fits whichever one you put them on and then whenever you finally solve one okay here comes Lamar Odom the sixth man of the year off the bench who has the quicks to Mm. take Dirk out on the perimeter and drive past him and so it was a really really daunting matchup uh, and, and given the Lakers' history of success against the Magic in the finals a couple years earlier, there was really no reason to believe that the Mavs would be able to just pick them apart with the pick and roll the way that they did. But, I mean, that's a credit, obviously, to Dirk, to Jason Terry, Peja, and most of all, J.J. Barea. Oh, yeah. my God, who had... Uh, this he is had when a, the myth the myth was born. Yeah, dude, J.J. Suave the legend. a series of a lifetime. So, uh, before we get into all that stuff... Uh, what did you think about, I mean, we all know how the series ended. The Mavs swept them in four games. They won the games mm-hmm. by an average of like 13, 14 points a game. Uh, obviously lopsided result in game four kind of influenced that, but game two was comfortable. Um, game one outside of a really bad, like four minute stretch, uh, bridging the second and third quarters, the Mavs kind of dominated that game. And then uh, game three was pretty back and forth until the end. The Mavs were able to seal it. So it, it was a pretty... It was a pretty close series, but as sweeps go, I mean, there was never really any doubt after game two that the Mavs were going to bring it home. So uh, what do you think – go back in time. Take me back in time to 2011. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were you thinking? What were you hearing? What was, like, the the topic of discussion throughout that series? Uh, Pulse of you or the fan base or ticket radio host, whatever, as that series was developing? Yeah, man, it was scary because – I mean, it it is the Lakers, and as much as you, I don't know, think the Lakers might be dead ever, like the last like six or seven years, you know there's always an opportunity for them to land a superstar and just 
rebuild on the fly into a championship team like they clearly had done this season with LeBron um, and Anthony Davis. So there's just that mystique about them that just hovers at all times. But for me, going into this series, I know everyone was kind of spooked about it. They uh, they thought, well, that was a fun little getting out of the first round. We kind of you know earned some cred coming back and beating the Trailblazers, but... Now it's kind of that time, and I remember telling everybody, I mean, I was super into, I was as into mass basketball back then as I am now, um, I just didn't work for the team, but the narrative, I mean, it was that you're going to get stomped by the Lakers, the Lakers are going to do what the Lakers have done the last two seasons, um, and just mow straight to the finals, and then, you know, if they match up with the Celtics again, or the Bulls, or whoever creeps up out of that, I mean, the Heat obviously ended up being the Eastern Conference representative, but... Um, it for me, I, I remember saying this repeatedly to anybody that would listen who was kind of like fringe Mavs fan who didn't quite become all the way Mavs fan until they advanced past the Trailblazers. Was man, if you go out there and you just just steal game one, just just punch the Lakers in the face game one, however you can do it, um, because this was rumored to be Phil's last season. I just saw all the cracks in this Lakers team pretty pretty far out. Um, I think Kobe was honestly tired of playing with that collection of guys. Uh, Powell had kind of, he hadn't quite aged out. Like, I feel like he had just started to, right? From being like just a dominant low post four slash five, whatever you want to call him. They were having to lean a lot on Andrew Bynum once he came back. Because he missed a bunch of time that season. I think he had a knee thing. Um, and then they're starting Derek Fisher at point guard. Um, Metal World Peace and all the stuff he was about back then was just wheels off. And, I mean, I, I know Odom was the sixth man of the year, and that type of thing, I think, can only work on a team with Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol. Um, but I, I was looking through the roster and how it was constructed and all this, and Odom was older than Pau Gasol. Like, he's older than Pau Gasol now. Like, that, I, that doesn't make sense to me. But it kind of does whenever you think of his collapse, and obviously there's a bunch of off-the-court issues there. But I remember... We beat the Trailblazers, and the next night, I believe it was, I was going to uh, an Arcade Fire show at Starplex, Smirnoff, whatever you call it now, Yellow Pages, something, something. The one the one in on Southside. Um, and it's a great show, having the best time ever. Like, if you've been to an Arcade Fire show, you know they're just, like, they're just epic. I don't care what you think about their music or if you're into that kind of music at all like they put on a show like they go for it and you know we're like two-thirds of the way through the show maybe three quarters through and and win butler and the front man you know he pauses and he's having you know some banter with the crowd and uh he says he and his wife you know, the lady that plays keys and does backup vocals in the band said they went to some french restaurant last night and i was like oh very arcade fire thing to do um but they said they run they brought it up because they bumped into tyson chandler they said, oh, man, we, we bumped into Tyson Chandler last night at such and such restaurant um, over here. And uh, super sweet guy. Gosh, he's he's really cool. Like, that guy's awesome. And, uh, you know, Wynn just keeps bantering. And he goes, you know, so y'all, y'all won, right, in the first round? And everyone's like, whole crowd's like, yeah. And then he's he's like, so who do y'all got next? And uh, everyone's like, Lakers, Lakers. And he just goes, huh, good luck with all that. And just starts playing the next song. And I just, I just logged that one in my little brain box. I was like, okay, so this is how the world feels about this, right? It's like, good luck. You're about to run dead on into a buzzsaw. 
And I look back at it now and like squaring up these rosters and of course history and what happens has changed this, but I'm like, right now I look back at it and I'm like, we're better at every position except for Kobe. Right. So how do you work around that? And maybe going into that, I didn't think so. I didn't think tricks could match up with Lamar Odom and I knew kid was better than Derek Fisher. Like that's an obvious advantage to me. And then Dirk is probably better than Pau Gasol at that time. And then Tyson Chandler is better than Bynum at that time. And honestly, the difference in that series, the thing that pushed me over the top was, number one, our style of basketball, which was we were the best ball movement team in the league that year. Like, there's no doubt about it. Um, I had some stats pulled up. Where'd they go? I think we had a two-to-one assist ratio. Like, we were like 104 to like 53 turnovers. Um, And the Lakers had like a total of like 70 assists for the entire series. They just couldn't move the ball. Um, here, I'll pull up the particulars here. In yeah, two they seconds. had 74 assists total to yeah. 47 turnovers. So that's about a one and a half to one ish assist yeah. turnover, while the Mavs were 104 assists on 148 made field goals. So that's <laughs> they're assisting on more than two thirds of their makes. Yeah, yeah. And you can just look at the assist percentage, some of the advanced stats. I mean, the Lakers were assisting on 53% of their possessions. We were assisting on 70.3 of our possessions. So just our style gave me, you know, a lot of confidence that um, no matter who we played, we were better at doing what we did than almost anyone. But then you look at the bench and what ended up being the huge difference in this entire, well, most of the playoffs, honestly, is Jason Terry, Peja Stoyakovich, and J.J. Barea versus what really the Lakers were rolling out there was Lamar Odom as a quote-unquote sixth man when you have a soft starter at point guard and Derek Fisher and Metaworld World Peace who wasn't really bringing anything except getting suspended for game three uh, at that point in his career. I'm sure he played some nasty defense, but I just don't remember that guy having much then. So it's basically Lamar Odom, Shannon Brown versus J.J. Peja and Jason, Jason Terry. And if you can just gain a couple points on each side of that, each direction, then you beat this team and just hope Kobe doesn't go nuclear. And that's one of the things I'd, I want to go back and watch these and kind of hone in on a little bit more is what kind of defense they were playing against Kobe. And I'm, I think we've asked, I've heard Sean talk about it, Sean Marion, Tricks talk about it a couple times. And I don't know if there's anything super complicated. He was just a very good defender. And a very savvy guy. And he was always good on guys like Durant and Kobe. Um, So I don't know if they were scheming him up. If they had tricks they were pulling. Or if they just just like, hey, take your long twos. We'll live with it. But Sean's always said just like, make their nights hell. Like just make everything a pain in the ass for them. And it might have been that simple. But I need to go back and watch like exactly how they were treating Kobe. Yeah, I mean they kind of just used a, a committee. So Deshaun Stevenson played the first, what, six, eight minutes of each half. So mm-hmm. during that time, he was guarding Kobe, uh, get, getting in his face, picking him up full court, getting like right underneath his chin as he's squaring up, uh, making him back down, knocking him off his spot, just being really physical, drawing a couple fouls maybe to do so, but uh, you know, pushing the boundaries of what the officials are willing to call in the playoffs. And then... Uh, whenever you know Deshaun would go out, that would be about the time that Lamar Odom came in, and so Sean Marion would cover Odom, which would leave Jason Kidd on Kobe, 
And so you had Kid guarding Kobe whenever Odom was in the game. And then if Odom was out of the game, then you had Marion guarding Kobe. Uh, and so you always had this rotation of three guys who each of them would spend, you know, 12, 14, 16 minutes a game on Kobe. And so none of them are really getting tired necessarily, you know. Uh, and so they're always one step ahead of Kobe just in, in terms of just general fatigue and durability and all that stuff. And now I think uh, a big storyline going into Mavs Lakers was uh, Kobe suffered, I think, an ankle injury against the Hornets. Mm. Uh, the thought was, you know, maybe he was like hindered a little bit. And he also had a, a, a little stent or bandage or something on one of his uh, shooting fingers on his right hand. And so, you know, he was definitely beaten up. But I mean, you know, Jason Kidd was like 38 years old at the time when right. he was checking Kobe. And so, uh, you know, they, they just rotated guys on him. So he was he was seeing different looks all night. And that was Marion's, I think, biggest contribution to that team was his ability to guard Kobe or Lamar Odom. He could mm -hmm. guard Brandon Roy or LaMarcus Aldridge. He could guard KD or Russell Westbrook. Uh, he could guard LeBron or Wade. And Jason Kidd could do the same thing. You know, he could guard LeBron or Wade. He could guard Kobe or uh, whoever the point guard was, you know, whether it was Derek Fisher or Steve Blake, even Shannon Brown. Kidd could guard all of those guys. And uh, they just had a lot of defensive versatility. Um, yeah, and I so think every game except for game two I'm looking at, we had multiple bench guys scoring double digits. I think they had that once. They had like a 15-point Shannon Brown and 10-point Lamar Odom bench game. And I think that was game two. And they were getting their butts kicked, so that doesn't really mean a lot to me. Um, but we had, I mean, J.J., Peja, and Jet contributing double-digit points. And then obviously game four was like... Oh my God! Like the Mother's Day Mother's Day massacre is a day I will never ever forget. Game four of that series, the Mavs won one hundred and twenty-two to eighty-six. In that game, <laughs> in that game, the Mavs bench. <laughs> the Mavs bench scored eighty-six points in that game. So the Mavs bench <laughs> so tied the insane. Lakers team. And what's more than that, in that game, the Mavs had eighty-six bench points. The Lakers had 89 bench points for the entire series. That's so, so crazy. So the Mavs bench almost outscored the Lakers bench for the whole series in one game. I mean, that's, that's, so the, that's the disparity that we're talking about. And now uh, Metal World Peace got suspended for game yeah. three for taking a cheap game shot three. on J.J. Barea. Common the elbow, uh, trend. I think. Uh, yeah, hit him right in the noggin. Um, or, or maybe the ribs, one of those two. Barea yeah, got beat just up a threw an elbow at him. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and uh, so he missed game three, which bumped Odom into the starting lineup, which was really mm -hmm. uh, a, a hindrance on the Lakers because that pushed all three of their big guys into the lineup at once. There was really not much spacing. Andrew Bynum got in foul trouble, which hurt them even more. So you had Joe Smith playing playoff minutes, <laughs> and then uh, that's when Peja came off the bench and just torched the second unit. I mean, the, the Lakers could not keep up with the Mavs' depth in that series. It was it was really Dude, impressive. Dude, Peja was so good in these playoffs, like – Every time the ball leaves his hand, I just, I just assume it's going in. Like, I just, I just think the thing's going in. And then in this series, um, let's see, we shot 46% overall from three, but Dirk shot 73%. Jet shot 68%. Peja shot 52% from three. And then the Lakers, when you look at their percentage, they shot under 20% from three. They had nobody shoot above point above thirty three percent from three in this series, so to me, it's like the ultimate just 
a man standing on the edge of the ocean just or on the edge of the shore just screaming at the ocean that's like like just cascading waves upon him of three pointers of like this is basketball now why didn't y'all evolve and they're in the off season like and there was a lot of feelings like that about the Lakers at that time that it was most likely Phil's last season doing this with them I think there was some Bynum grumblings about a contract or something. There was just so much stuff like coming out about the Lakers where I was like, these guys want to be done with each other. Like this team does not want to play with each other for like 12 more games or 16 more games. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I felt game one that Kobe turnover in the final minute that put us within one and then Powell fouls Dirk on that inbounds play uh and it's like 95 94 at that time you're up one with like 20 seconds left and they're we're just trying to get the ball in right to try because we didn't play that well that game I watched that replay the other night it was just kind of ugly and I was like this is what the Lakers do though you know they're just gonna do their thing and wait for you to mess up and you just have to be you just have to be at like an eight the whole time and I'll play them and we absolutely stole game one because we're down we're down one with 20 seconds left. We were down three with, like, whatever, a minute left. Um, and Powell fouls Dirk on that inbounds play. Dirk shoots two free throws. The first one hits every part of the basket you can hit. Like, it hits left rim, right rim, back rim, like, bounces off the glass and eventually goes in, ties it. Second one is money, 96-95, and that's, that's it, man. You steal a game in L.A., against the team that is trying to quit on each other to begin with. And, I mean, I you you see in competition, so much of it is about confidence. It's about we're better than you, my best is the best, is better than anybody else on earth. And once you get that little sliver of doubt in there for a team that's already, like, kind of bursting at the seams, and I'm sure they went to practice the next day and... Kobe would not get out of their ear. And I'm sure Bynum didn't react great to that. And I'm sure Odom didn't re- react great to that. And Powell's trying to hold everybody together, probably. And Derek Fisher's like, let's chill out. I've been here before. But, man, you get that doubt. You plant that seed of doubt in game one of, y'all played about as good as you can play, and we still stole it from you. Well, the Lakers scored 94 points in game one, and that was the most points they scored in any game that series. <laughs> and that's that's a pretty big indictment and, and and they averaged I mean to be clear you know they played a very slow pace in this series but the Lakers I want to say led the league in scoring that year uh or were near the top I mean the, the triangle they were still able to execute teams to death basically with post-ups and with Kobe and uh you know some timely contributions from bench guys but in that game in game one they scored 94 points a ton of those came on fast breaks when the Mavs were just committing you know catastrophic turnovers like getting mm-hmm. stripped right at midcourt or throwing it you know cross court getting pick six the other way for a dunk so I mean in the half court the Lakers were never really able to solve the Mavs defense they, they yeah. just never were um they were sixth they were, in offensive rating that year so still almost uh, almost top five in offensive rating that year and then they were uh sixth in defense as well so just a very well balanced team yeah really good team but the Mavs were just mm-hmm. able to make it tough for them um you know Bynum got in foul trouble a couple times Gasol just couldn't really get it going against Dirk, no he which, never got anything going man yeah and in, in any of those games I mean his, his yeah. highest scoring game in that series I don't know if he even scored 20 points once in that series so he he really had a tough one 
Um, he averaged 12 and a half a game. Like, that, yeah. that's not going to do it, man. That's just not going to do it. Yeah, especially when Dirk on the other end is giving you 25, 28, whatever he averaged. He averaged 25 yeah. a night in that yeah. series and shot 57% from the field. I mean, the yeah, Lakers Powell shot 42%. Like, he's yeah. just, he just was bad, dude. He was as bad yeah. that series. And uh, the Lakers didn't have an answer for Dirk, but they also didn't have an answer for J.J. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what, you know, at, at the time – I knew that JJ was like an X factor. I mean, in game two, he just put on a clinic. It was a masterpiece watching him, him and Haywood and Dirk and Peja in game mm-hmm. two and, and Jet two. What they did was just, I mean, they just throttled the Lakers in the fourth quarter, just smashed yeah. them. But during the rewatch on uh, on Fox Sports Southwest this week is when it really hit home. Like they just, the Lakers were not playing modern defense. Like y- you can't mm-hmm. defend that way anymore. Um, it's kind of the product of like a bygone era. Um, what the Mavs were doing is putting three or four guys on the strong side, the side of the floor with the ball, setting mm-hmm. a high screen for JJ, who was quick enough to get around Steve Blake or Bynum or whoever stepped out. Like the Lakers were going over the screen, so then JJ would beat the big man. So then the Lakers started going under the screen, but then the Mavs would just rescreen with Dirk. So then if you switch that, which teams normally did, then you had a point guard on Dirk and a big yeah. guy on JJ, and you're winning that every time. So what happened is the Lakers started getting scrambled. They were trying to mix it up, and J.J. always had an answer. He'd get into the middle, and the Lakers were so aggressively like flooding the strong side of the ball with four or five defenders on that side that you had the weak side corner open. And so so many of these baskets the Mavs were scoring in game four and, and earlier in the series, too. Oh, just wide open, dude. Yeah. Just good J.J., God. J.J., Asia. Dirk, and Jet penetrating and then kicking it to the opposite corner. Every yeah. single time down the floor, they were getting open threes. And, you know, in the moment, you know, back in those days in 2011, it's, it feels like a lifetime ago. If a team started like 0 for 7 from 3, you were groaning when they took the next one. You were like, God, just oh, take yeah. layups. But yeah. throughout that entire series, the Mavs were getting open threes. And so even when they're down in these games, you know, the coaching staff has got to be thinking like, dude, we got to keep doing this because we're open. And then finally the floodgates just uh, burst open in game four. But I mean, throughout the entire series, the Mavs were getting open corner threes. And, and, you know, you could defend that way in the 90s and in the early 2000s because teams were just, you know, sending uh, – you had Brendan Haywood or Tyson Chandler, like, in the dunker spot. Well, that big man would just pop out to, for, like, a little 15-foot baseline jumper. And even if you hit those half the time, then you can, yeah. you can manage that. Yeah, you Yeah, you can manage that because that's better than a layup, right? But when you get these aces out there in the corner – you're hitting 40 or 50% of those wide open threes, then you cannot keep up with that. And so yeah. we, ma- we mathballed them for sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's what it was going back and watching the series. I was like, man, they just, they really did just channel the power of math to like the fourth, the, the fourth one champs. game four is awesome. And I want to ask you about your feelings heading into that game uh, in a second, but yeah, the first three games, it was just like, you know, I didn't see anything super spectacular. I mean, Dirk was being Dirk, at that time, which is like 28 and 14 every night just for laughs. But it didn't feel like, like, I don't know. I don't know. You kind of want to feel like some kind of emotion out of a game. You know what I mean? And the first three, besides just being scared of the Lakers and like the anxiety release that was happening, it just felt like we were like just math balling them. We were just doing an equation over and over and over and over and over and just kept, okay, we're going to score 1.25 points per possession. Y'all are going to score 1.19. And that's how this is going to work. And that's the whole deal. And then game four, I, I, I was still like a little bit afraid. Um, 
don't let them get up off the mat, right? Um, you can't let Kobe think he's in this thing. Because the second he starts realizing his superpowers again, um, and his ankle starts feeling better, like, oh crap, I do not want to deal with, okay, they steal game four, and then Kobe drops 50 in game five, and then, you know, we start doubting ourselves, and the pendulum swings back the other way, but what was your, after we got up 3-0, um, obviously our test missed game three, so it's, or Metal World Peace missed game three, so it was a little bit of a, here you go, here's a freebie, um, were you still a little worried about the Lakers going into game four? Well, in game three, the press conference after the game. So I was at that game. I didn't see it until the next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched, I was watching ESPN and I saw what Kobe said after the game. Someone said like, you know, do you think you still have a chance? And he was like, yeah, idiot. We're, we're still going <laughs> like, to win this. Yeah. yeah he went on he that. Said. He went on that rant basically saying like, yeah, we're, I believe we're going to win this series. And part of me was thinking, man, what a jerk. And then the other part of me was thinking, oh, crap, (laughs) because like, (laughs) I think that they can win this thing still. I mean, after game three. He had that look about uh, it when he said it, too. He was just like, no, we're going to win this series. Yeah, there was no there was no like emotion or Mm -hmm. doubt in his in his eyes. And uh, after game three, Dirk gave a little interview where he said, you know, I the the interviewer, uh, I forget who it was. I'm sorry. But uh, the interviewer asked him, uh, you know, you're up 3-0. No team has ever come back from being down 0-3. And Dirk was like, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff in my time in the league. I don't want to be the first one. And (laughs) to be expressing that kind of doubt or fear, like, I don't want to be the first one, that's the ultimate Dallas sports emotion to have. Like, there is still a way to lose this series that has never been done before, but this Dallas sports team will find the way to become the first. I mean, that's what we do. We do it better than anybody in Dallas, lose in heartbreaking fashion. And so... Yeah, I mean, there was no part of me. I was confident, obviously. I was also 19 years old, but I was mm-hmm. confident that they were going to win the series. I didn't know that they'd sweep. I certainly didn't know that they'd just beat the Lakers with a hammer in game four. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, there was no reason to believe that the Mavs would actually be able to pull it off until they did because we, just yep. like Dirk, we'd seen enough throughout the time. Oh, that, Dude, this is one of those moments that, like, everything leading up to this moment had to happen in the exact fashion it did, right? You had to have 2006. You had to have uh, Warriors the next year, 2007, happen to you. You had to have these scars that you just would not let your foot up off the the gas. Um, And going into that game, I, I had the same exact emotions. And then the game starts, and the crowd is just insane. Like, Jet hits one or two first quarter when jet started getting going like i don't know if there's i mean luca has the same kind of energy to him but dude when jet started like cooking back in those days there was almost nothing like it in sport like that dude just loved the crowd loved the mavs fans so much that when he made a three like he felt like he was like in your face like yelling let's go and he was a lot of the time. Like, there's so many photos of Jet from every single game just hyping the crowd and going nuts and taking off on the runway. And then Peja starts knocking him down. Cardinal got himself a three. Corey Brewer starts knocking down corner threes. And I was like, this is like the craziest night-night, go-home, your reign is done type moment that has ever happened. It was so abrupt and so just, you're here, you're gone. Go home, Lakers. But 
all that said, the Mavs were up something like 25 at half. Mm-hmm. And then the Lakers came out in the third quarter and scored a few straight buckets and got it yeah. down, I think, to 65 to 46. And uh, Ron Artest came away with a loose ball, driving down the paint, one on zero fast break and goes up for a dunk, but kind of like fumbles the ball a little bit <laughs> and ends up front rimming what he turned into a finger roll. Like it was just a little stumble. But that would have made it 17 points, and and mm-hmm. Rick is already up off the bench, like signaling for timeout, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, this yeah. is this is how it ends, you know, because mm-hmm. you go up from three and a half to nothing to only up three one, and then yep. you're like, oh my god, uh, but he missed the layup, mm-hmm. and the Mavs came away with it, and I think it, I I want to say it was the next possession, like he misses it, Mavs rebound, boom, Peja three or Jet three yep. or probably both. And uh, <laughs> and it was over. I mean, it was it was just Jet Haymaker, Peja Haymaker, Jet Haymaker, Peja Haymaker. They shot together 15 out of 16 on threes in that game. <laughs> in that game, That's 15 so of 16. The Mavs were 20 of 32. They made more threes in game four than the Lakers did in the entire series. Yep. Uh, that game, 20 for 32, is 62.5%, which still stands as the best shooting percentage from three in a game in playoff history with at least 30 attempts. And before you say, that's really specific, there's like 350 games where teams have taken yeah. at least 33. So that's a lot of playoff basketball. And when Jet uh, made nine, right, which is yeah, still, at the still time, a playoff record. It's I tied for a playoff Steph, record. Or Clay, Steph or Clay might have tied it or broken it. But at yeah, the there time, might be a 10 in there now. Yeah, it tied a playoff record or maybe set a playoff record at the time. Um, and then uh, the Mavs... 23s in that game tied the playoff record which has since been broken a few times but it took a few mm-hmm. years for anybody to break it but I mean it was yep. an all-time shooting performance and oh, in, in that game Dirk only took I think 11 shots in that game yeah it's um, 17 points like he yeah, played 31 minutes in it was an elimination work. game but I mean it was yeah. the ultimate like the Mavs were like all right yeah, we don't need to do any of this Dirk post-up stuff anymore like it looks cool yeah. whenever he backs down Gasol and hits him with a one-legger but how about we just kick it to the corner every single possession mm-hmm. and yeah. just see if just they make can the easy us. play and I, I and just I'm do it serious. do it until sw- the bleeding I stops. I swear to God, if you go back and watch these highlights that we tweeted uh, on on Dallas Mavs, they're on Instagram, they're everywhere. If you go back and watch Game Four highlights of those twenty threes, fifteen of them are in the corner. I mean, it's just yep. and it's wide open, wide open, mm-hmm. wide open, wide open, wide open. Th- that's the shot that entire defensive schemes are built around preventing today. Yep. But that was the shot in 2011 that the Lakers like were allowing, and mm-hmm. uh, that that simple difference is enough to turn what was a competitive series into a sweep with one of the most lopsided elimination game performances in NBA history. Yeah, and where where this fits in like the deck of cards that is the 2011 championship run, I don't know if this series plays out any other way. If if we go on to win the title, like just quite honestly, I think beating the pants off the two-time defending champion and sweeping them and doing that in that way in game four of just being unconscious and you can't stop making shots, then you get the rest, then you go into the OKC series thinking, what are y'all? Y'all are like, y'all are like little puppies. Like we just knocked out the Lakers, the two-time defending champs. I don't, I don't know if it, if it plays out the same way, if everything doesn't happen, this exact sequence, 
if game one is isn't a nail biter, if game you know if our test doesn't get suspended in game three, if we don't make twenty threes in game four and just like laugh them out of the building and end their reign and Phil Jackson's career in L.A. I don't know if we go into the Thunder series thinking we can beat anybody on the planet. Um, it's It had to happen that way to me. It had to be that way for us to take that kind of confidence, get that week off, um, and then, you know, roll up to OKC. And game four really was the first game that Jet kind of, like, emerged. Throughout mm-hmm. that entire playoff run to that point, I mean, he had, I think he had maybe one big game against the Blazers. Yeah, he had a game had, against uh, Blazers. But against the Lakers, man, in that series, he wasn't really doing that much. I mean, he wasn't no. scoring or shooting that well or anything. I mean, uh, in the series, no, he dude, shot he made 13 a... out of 19 on threes, but he was 9 for 10 in one game. So for the rest <laughs> right. of the series, he was 4 for 9. I mean, 4 for 9 is a good percentage, but in three games, you're like, you're not really doing that much. Yeah. You know, Not he, a high-volume guy like Jet, like... He yeah. needs to shoot a ton of them. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, he was kind of – they were they were kind of isolating J.J. and Dirk and keeping it with those two, which is still good for the Mavs. You know, they swept the series. But mm-hmm. that kind of ignited Jet. And after that, yeah. it was like, dude, he was he was money, for th- really, for the rest of the run. And and Jay Kidd, too. And, yeah, I think it instilled a belief in them for sure. And, you know, also if you, if you don't sweep and you don't get the rest, let's say you go six or even seven games and you still win, mm-hmm. you're a little, like – more physically tired but then also maybe emotionally kind of yeah. exhausted because beating the mm-hmm. lakers i mean it, it was very exciting it takes it out of you we saw uh the mavs in uh in 2006 after they beat the lakers or after they beat the spurs in seven games it was kind of like their championship you know because yeah. they, they finally beat the spurs this is the first time dirk ever played kobe this is the first time the mavs played mm-hmm. the lakers in the kobe era and so uh for for that to be like this really like emotional climax uh, of game six or game seven might have been like a, okay we we did enough but there was after game four it was like yeah I mean that we're we have bigger we have bigger fish to fry you know yeah than the two-time defending champs and, a, and in a playoff run there's so like few moments in which you're not just feeling like constant anxiety like the wind can change what's going to happen to our our future really quickly that you don't get these like victory laps you you never do you just you just grind and you grind and you grind until you either get eliminated or you win the last game of the season and it's almost like a relief it's not even like we did a good we made, we made a good um but against the lakers like beating them by 36 and just i mean that was just like the most demoralizing <laughs> i can't imagine being a lakers fan on the other side of that like that would be the most demoralizing way to end your reign of a two-time championship uh, defenders as I've I've ever seen. Quite honestly, like they just they we we thought they were the buzzsaw because what history had proven, we were the buzzsaw. We were the thing that you did not have an answer for because of the ball movement, because of our depth, because of our three-point shooting. Um, and I know a lot of teams back then didn't really necessarily like. The roster wasn't built up to have like a Peja and a Jet and a JJ coming off the bench. Um, and, and it's cool to think about. And like, I'm sure there were teams that had as many shooters as we did. They just didn't have the compliments to them, right? And being able to knock down 23s in a game on like light work is the reason you have those guys, the reason you acquire Peja, the reason you bring in Corey Brewer. 
the reason you let Jet just shoot his heart out in the regular season. Um, so that when that time comes, you get in a situation where you, you know, Paige can give you 15 points a night, which that dude, like watching this, like I forgot how incredible Paige was. Like he was just. And that was the final every times of his career, Paige. Yeah. Every time, dude. Every time we needed a three out of him, he's there. He's ready, he gets it off, and I assume it's going in every single time. And, uh, yeah, it just, it was a moment, man. I mean, there's there's more meaningful games. There's there's Miami game six. There's, you know, comeback wins. Um, there's Thunder when Tricks blocks Kevin Durant. Um, there are games that meant more um, in terms of a box score, in terms of a list them all what this achieved for the franchise. But I don't know if there's one There's one game ahead of this one to me that tells me exactly what the Mavericks are about this season. And it's game six of the NBA Finals. Um, but when you did this, man, when you you swept these guys, you were, you were on everybody's radar. You were the bad boy in the block at that point. It was the ultimate basketball high. And I'm I'm very mm-hmm. happy that we were able to experience it and relive it. Um, so that's Mavs Lakers, man. Tonight yeah. on Fox awesome. Sports is it's uh, games one and three. Uh, mm-hmm. Game one, of course, Dirk's 48 point special, 15 yeah. field goal attempts, 24 for 24 from the free throw line, which I believe is still the playoff record for most makes without a miss. Um, it's yeah. good stuff. Mavs are going to uh, Mavs are going to flex a little more on the young Thunder before they realize what they're capable of, mm-hmm. and uh, then they're going to they're going to go into the finals here by the end of the week. James um, Harden, Serge Ibaka, Nick Collison, Thunder sixth man James Harden who played mm-hmm. like twenty two minutes a game and took yep. like four shots. Like what? Yep. What a career took, arc he's had. He took twenty threes this whole series. Wow. He'll he'll do that like next game we play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Mike, before we get out of here, is there anything else that you want to say about, uh, I mean, we might do another pod during this playoff run, but just about Mavs Lakers or Mavs Thunder or really anything from, from that time in your life? No, man. I mean, these games have been really fun to rewatch. Um, you know, it's a lot of the time, same exact time when I was like starting my professional career, like age 24 at 24, 25. Uh, and I was just, you know, starting at the ticket or doing something besides, weekend overnight to the tickets so a lot of my um first like toe dips into creativity and like what this looks like and you know whenever I kind of cut my teeth um I used to do like a a game recap like an audio recap of like podium stuff of best calls of the game and like put them to a song and kind of make it all make sense in like a two minute thing like a game the story of the game type audio thing after every game and I would give it to Norm and, and Mike Soroy, and they'd play it, introing their show um, on the ticket. So this is, I mean, this was, a lot of people like to have sports events that happen in their late teen years because they, you know, they, they're home a lot and it's kind of when their opinions are formulated. But for me, beginning my professional career and figuring out what kind of creative person I wanted to be was this exact moment. So watching this is like super fun to me to remember this moment this game happened i thought i could use that in in this piece right here and make it awesome and so a lot of a lot of a lot of sentimentals going on uh watching these and it's super fun and um just glad to be a part of a 
a team that did something like this once upon a time. Let's do it again, maybe in a couple months or in a couple years or yeah. something. Let's let's yeah, get man. back there. Absolutely. Uh, as fun as it is to relive 2011, I hope that we can relive another year pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. All right, man. That is going to be today's episode of Mavs Plane. Thank you, Mike. And I uh, hope no you all worries, enjoyed. Man. Be sure to uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Whether you're yeah. an iTunes person or a Spotify person, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, I believe Himalaya. I'm probably missing <laughs> a platform, so if I am, then tweet me and let me know, and uh, I'll shout it out on the next one. But uh, no, these know. have been really fun, dude. These have been fun to listen to, honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, I know I know a lot of this stuff because I work in the. Um, the org and a lot of this this podcast was me and you is our idea um, so I know a lot of the topics already but I think just listening back it's been pretty been pretty fun man I, I, I appreciate the insight I'm sure a lot of people do too so uh, bully for you well thank you for uh, for not threatening to fire me on the air I appreciate that I have my boss's uh, approval but uh, yeah no what, what's that what good Oh, okay. All right. Back to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that's it for us. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you.